You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. We're going to be totally upfront with you. We took a big risk going independent. To make this work, we need your support to beat the corporate media. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they are ripping this country apart. They are making millions of dollars doing it. To help support our mission of making all of us hate each other less, hate the corrupt ruling class more, support the show. Become a Breaking Points premium member today where you get to watch and listen to the entire show ad-free and uncut an hour early before everyone else. You get to hear our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to participate in weekly Ask Me Anythings. And you don't need to hear our annoying voices pitching you like I am right now. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium member today, which is available in the show notes. Enjoy the show, guys. Joining us now for our weekly segment with The Daily Poster is Andrew Perez. Great to see you, Andrew. Good to see you, Andrew. Thanks for having me again. Of course. So you've got an interesting piece up here, some updated reporting on the Medicare drug pricing. So just so everybody recalls... um, Democrats have been running on the ability of Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, saving a bunch of money since 2006. It was supposed to be in the Build Back Better plan. It has been stripped down along with a a number of other measures that would reduce prescription drug prices. And you have a piece here saying pharma dems saved the drug industry half a trillion dollars. Talk to us about that background, those provisions, and what exactly they did in order to save those half a trillion dollars. Sure. Um, yeah. So the plan that Democrats were talking about for you know much of the past year would have saved, um, w- would have basically cost the industry seven hundred billion dollars in revenue, um, an estimated seven hundred billion. Um, and the the latest version uh, would cost about two hundred fifty billion. Um, yeah. So it's a net of about four hundred fifty billion over a decade, and you know just almost almost half a trillion dollars. And it's something that's been sort of lost in the shuffle here. Um, you know, I think. You know, a lot of progressives are, you know, sort of happy that there's at least some, you know, drug pricing provision in here. Um, and and there, there are some, you know, items in this in this measure that would uh, help save, you know, help save people money, the public money. Um, but, 
you know, the, basically Big Pharma won a huge victory here. And, and you know, they're still, you know, out ranting about how this bill is, you know, sort of going to be the death of them, but it's really not going to be. Um, and so not only is it not going to be, but, you know, their return on investment here is just huge. Um, you know, we've seen reports about how much they've spent on lobbying so far this year, um, you know, like around $260 million. And, you know, they've been running ads. We, we talked last week about some ads that they've been running, mm-hmm. um, one of their, their front groups uh, running to boost uh, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. Um, they've, they've put some money into some ads boosting some of the, their allies in the House, too. Um, but, you know, overall, that money is not going to be even, you know, it's going to be less than 0.1% of the money they just saved. So tell, introduce us to some of these pharma dems. Who are they? How much money are they getting for this? Um, yeah, well, so Kirsten Cinema obviously, has sort of led the effort in the Senate. Um, Scott Peters has been a longtime recipient of pharma cash in, in the House, as has Kurt Schrader um, from Oregon. And uh, yeah, they, they're all benefiting now from some spending by this group called Center Forward, uh, which we spoke about last week. Uh, it's this sort of, you know, group that's supposedly a, you know, outfit for political centrism. But um, Center Forward has put at least uh, $1.2 million into ads boosting cinema. They're also running digital ads uh, promoting uh, Peters and Schrader. And, you know, we've, we've seen even some, some, you know, smaller advocacy groups that are also pharma funded. Um, running like, you know, uh, banner ads in newspapers supporting Peters and Schrader, as well as Kathleen Rice in New York, who helped negotiate this deal, too. Um, and, and Josh Gottheimer has also been involved in the effort uh, in New Jersey. Um, and yeah, so, you know, in some of these uh, lawmakers are, you know, kind of so-called moderates um, who are worried about the deficit. But, you know, here you're talking about they could have brought in $450 billion in revenue, helped helped fund the reconciliation bill, and, you know, they, they explicitly chose not to. Yeah, suddenly the deficit was not a concern so much as making sure they were delivering for the donor class, ultimately, which is incredibly revealing. Could you explain the details of the quote-unquote compromise that was ultimately struck here? Because originally it looked like prescription drug price negotiation was going to be out of the bill altogether. Then they said, okay, well, maybe we can negotiate on just this few handful of drugs, um, can you break down sort of what that looks like at this point? Yeah, basically, um, they'll they'll be able to negotiate like much much fewer drugs. The last one would have done um, like sort of twenty five drugs a year at first, and then fifty in subsequent years. I think this one's about ten each year. Um, what the the real trick though is that um, here you're only uh, the government's only going to be able to negotiate prices on drugs that have passed their exclusivity period. Um, so. And they're not going to be able to basically affect any drug prices like at their launch. Um, so it, it's not going to really lower those drug prices um, really overall. You know, one, one of the positive things here is that there will be an, a cap on insulin prices um, at $35 a month, I believe, um, which, you know, would, will definitely help people. But, um, you know, it also goes into effect the insulin cap after, I believe, in 2023, so right after the midterm elections. So, it's going to be hard to tell people that, like, you know, we've lowered drug prices when it is sort of TBD. Yeah, and only affects, like, a few drugs yeah. also. Talk yeah. a little bit more about that timeline because that's something you sketch out here. Um, the implementation of this is going to take a long time. Yeah, yeah. They won't actually – and this was in the original uh, legislation too, but they won't be negotiating prices on drugs until 2025. Um 
so it's it is a few years down the road, um, and in fact, it's after the next presidential election. So you know, you could see if Republicans you know flip the you know flip the entire government that 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 won't happen. Um, it, it it should definitely be a concern here. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thanks Always for breaking this down, it. Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you guys for watching. Have a fantastic day, a great weekend. We got more fantastic content posting for you over the weekend for your enjoyment. And we'll see you back here on Monday. Well, as Joe Biden crashes and burns in our polls, and there's a lot of angst inside the Democratic Party about what the hell are we going to do in 2024 if he doesn't run, uh, there's a spotlight of Joe of uh, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. So Washington Post is beginning to put this, you know, some of the whispers are beginning to come out of the edge saying Harris and Buttigieg under the spotlight amid uncertainty around Joe Biden's future. And the more and more that this comes out, Crystal, the lower that Biden continues to sink in the polls and the more jockeying that happens behind the scenes in the Washington Post pages, in the New York Times and more over who's the better successor, the more interesting it's going to get. And I just think it's hilarious because as you and I both know, Neither of these people is going to win national office. There's just no way. I mean, they both crashed and burned in the Democratic primary. Buttigieg less so than Kamala Harris, but not saying much whenever you get like, what did he get, like seventh or something in the South um, Carolina? When we got to South Carolina, yeah. he got, I believe, 3% of the black vote. Right, yeah. I hear that, you know, so that's, that's an important constituency. Of a, of a really Republican. significant constituency. <laughs> yes. he's, I got, hear that. he's got a great coalition there to build on. Right. I heard that they <laughs> do vote in the Democratic primary. Seems mm-hmm. something important if you were to cover that, honestly, something that we never particularly did during the Democratic primary. But uh, the more that we're seeing this, D.C. is really just freaking out over the fact that they have Kamala Harris on the one hand, the most unpopular vice president in modern American history. And then you have Pete Buttigieg, who slightly more popular, but still would easily lose a national election, Um, probably could not even win his own party's primary. And there's jockeying, Crystal, amongst both of their aides for who's going to look best coming out of the Biden administration. Buttigieg giving everybody a run for his money by taking two months off for paternity leave while we have the middle of a supply chain crisis. Kamala by just being odious generally, like in the national spotlight, and also being set up to fail by the Biden team. So nobody's coming out of this thing looking very good, at least so far. You know, I keep thinking about, um, we covered last week this Jackman study Mm -hmm. where they were evaluating in a really unique way the different types of candidates and who actually has broad appeal among, like, the broad working class that's remotely gettable by a Democratic Party candidate. And what they found was the absolute worst thing to be was the woke moderate. Which is exactly, the woke corporatists is exactly what Kamala and Pete, and Pete are fall yes. into. That's the quadrant. And so it just shows you, I don't even know if it's how brain-dead Democratic Party elites are. They had to be pretty brain-dead to put Kamala in this position to start with as vice president. You know, the media tried to make her happen. No, it didn't work. Nobody wanted her. And then they go ahead and over, well, you guys just didn't. You guys just didn't really give her a chance. So we're going to put her in as vice president, knowing that by doing that, you are setting her up to be the next Democratic nominee, whether if it's in four years or eight years, either way, you're clearly saying this is the future of the party. And then predictably, she's utterly crashing and burning. As bad as Biden's poll numbers are, hers are even worse. Um, 
her office is apparently rife with dysfunction. Oh, yeah. Which has been a consistent theme. Again, all predictable, consistent theme since she started in politics and also manifested on her presidential campaign is these dysfunctional staffing issues and the family gets involved in these different fiefdoms and she's way too cautious and all of these things are consistent problems throughout her career. And so now they're thinking like, oh, God, can we swap this person out? And instead of reaching for someone who might actually have broad appeal, they like Pete. Yes. And why do they like Pete? Well, because Pete is very comfortable. Pete is a guarantee that, you know, all of the sort of Democratic consultant industrial complex and the existing donor class are still going to be able to maintain their slots. And ultimately, that's why I say I don't know if I want to say that they're brain dead, because ultimately they care a lot more about that than they care about winning political office. Oh, yeah. So Pete is a guarantee that they keep their spots, and that's what ultimately matters the most. The really crazy part, too, is how openly top Democrats are talking about the possibility of Biden not running. I mean, we're talking about his former campaign chair. Let's put this on the screen. Yeah. Chris Dodd, who, very longtime friend of Biden. Look at what he's saying there, quoted in the New York Times. I'm hoping the president runs for re-election, but for whatever reason that might not be the case, it's hard to believe there wouldn't be a short list without Kamala's name on it. She's the vice president of the United States. I'm hoping, once again, this guy literally chaired the vice presidential search committee, was one of the closest confidants of the president. You might not remember him, but Chris Dodd was a powerhouse here in D.C. for a long time. I mean, he was a senator from Connecticut. His dad is a famous guy. I believe he's in politics as well. Major political institution um, in the Democratic Party. Goes back with Biden many, many, many years. And so for him to come out and say, I'm hoping that he runs for re-election, I mean, that stuff is crazy. I can tell you that under the Trump years, it was you were absolutely shut out. If you were to raise the possibility that Trump was not going to run for re-election, mm. the people were like, "It's." They're like anybody in the Trump orbit who starts to say stuff like that, tell them to shut up. It's not part of it. They would get yelled at. All of that because it was considered such an assurance. Well, because you instantly become a lame duck, right? And you're, you know, you're feeding all of this, you know, in the meat grinder of like, well, what's going to happen? What's What's, it's just chaos that the fact that he can't even assure the people closest to him that he's going to run for re-election. I think that's the most stunning part when I see that Chris Dodd quote in particular. I mean, all you have to do is look at him when he steps into the public yes, eye and yeah. see that, you know, for him to run for another four years on top of this, that would be a lot. This yeah. is a man who, when he considered running back in 2016, thought about doing it under the pledge of I'm only going to serve one term. Right. So now here we are in 2020. He wins— Without the pledge, but, I mean, I think the writing on the wall is on the wall for a lot of people that, you know, this may not, he may not be up to it for a second term. At the same time, it is interesting, and for the people who are, like, Kamala stands, which mm-hmm. is, you know— a, They all live here in Washington. They all live yeah, here. Yeah. They're <laughs> very on Twitter, but right. they do exist. Um, I do think that the, it's fair when they say that she really hasn't been given uh, sort of easy or—she um, just hasn't been— set up for success by the Biden White House. And they're contrasting that, on the other hand, with Pete, who not only, you know, he takes his months off, immediately everybody rushes to his defense the minute he's attacked by Tucker and by others. And they're also handing him hundreds of billions of dollars as transportation secretary to effectively do with as he pleases. We have this business insider, or now they're just insider it still says Business Insider, though, there. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. anyway, Insider. Pete Buttigieg has become the most powerful transportation secretary ever. 
So that's terrifying, actually. But in the <laughs> in the what should be you know relatively non controversial realm of transportation secretary, and he's given all this money to play with. Meanwhile, they're either feeding calm under the wolves by like, hey, why don't you uh, just handle that immigration si- situation down there? No big deal, right. and giving her no power to actually do anything about it. <laughs> Or they're literally sticking her, like, at the kids' table for that space whatever thing mm-hmm. she was doing yes. that was equal. With all they, the child with actors. With all the child actors. <laughs> yeah. So, um, There listen. ain't no winners in this game. Yeah. Right? I mean, listen, no matter what portfolio they handed Kamala Harris, I don't think it was going to be a, a real home run here. But it does seem like the White House is putting their thumb on the scale in terms of who they want to sort of promote and elevate and really see as the future of the party at this point. I think that's right. Very telling. All right, guys. Thanks for watching. We'll have more for you later. So I, and I think others, have been tracking what appears to be a pretty dramatic ideological evolution on the part of Tulsi Gabbard, which to this point had mostly been in the realm of sort of culture, things like immigration, where you could say, okay, she always had a little bit of a different stance, things like national security. Abortion, too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're seeing some comments on economics that are just polar opposite of where she was just a couple years ago when she was launching her presidential campaign. Let's take a listen to those comments, and then we'll react on the other side. Here's the reality with the bill that they're continuing to push forward, is that our government is too powerful and too big, even as it is, and this bill is only going to make matters worse. Uh, The provisions in the bill are so vague that really it's going to be unelected bureaucrats who end up deciding how these provisions are implemented, and no accountability, Uh, and, and really it'll empower them to be able to stick their noses into every aspect of our lives furthering this this cradle-to-grave mentality of government dependence that makes us lose even more of our autonomy as we are paying for it. As government gets bigger, our wallets are getting smaller. Cradle-to-grave mentality of government dependence. I mean, first of all, you could take this from any conservative talking point ever. It also sounds exactly like the stuff Joe Manchin has been saying. And just to remind people, like, when she was running for president— not only is she, she, she voiced support for Green New Deal, she was actually to the left of AOC on the Green New Deal because her qualm about it, her one concern was that it opened the door for nuclear. Mm-hmm. She's for Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, uh, free community college, universal pre-K, prescription drug price reform, all of these things. So listen, I get it. I have my own critiques of Build Back Better. Um, but it's remarkable to see how dramatically her entire ideology seems to have changed. And, you know, again, if you want to critique Build Back Better and the Biden administration, we do it here all the time. One potential line of inquiry you could that would fit with the Tulsi of old is the fact that it looks like most millionaires, we can throw this tweet up on the screen, it looks like most millionaires are actually going to get a uh, tax cut Yes. Uh, in this end result. So that's not great. Um, and so just as one more reminder of what Tulsi used to sound like on these things, this is not ancient history. This is her launch speech for her presidential campaign. Here's the way that she used to talk about economics and about the country writ large. Let's take a listen. We have to fight to make sure that every single American gets the quality health care that they need through Medicare for all. We must stand up against the big Wall Street banks who gamble with our money and our future. 
stand up against overreaching intelligence agencies and big tech companies who take away our civil liberties, privacy, and freedoms in the name of national security and corporate greed. We must stand up against those who pollute our land, our water, and our air. We must stand up against private prisons who are profiting off the backs of those who are caught up in a broken criminal justice system. A system that puts people in prison for smoking marijuana while allowing corporations like Purdue Pharma who are responsible for the opioid-related deaths of thousands of people to walk away scot-free with their coffers full. This so-called criminal justice system, which favors the rich and powerful and punishes the poor, cannot stand. We must join hands and stand up against those who perpetuate bigotry, hatred, and violence against our brothers and sisters because of their race, religion, or sexual orientation. I mean, she goes on to say, listen, we got to bring the troops home so we can spend money uh-huh. here. Very, very different from this cradle-to-grave dependency stuff that we're hearing now. I was shocked whenever she did not more forcefully back Biden on Afghanistan. That was really the time yeah. when I was stunned, right? And especially right. in that, I think it was a Tucker appearance where he brought her on to criticize the military on the drone strike. And I think, she didn't even defend it, but she's like, well, you know, sometimes. I was like... What the hell is Yeah, he wanted going on her. Here, he right? gave her a layup to criticize him from the left yes. over the drone strike. That's right. And instead she wanted to talk about Islamism. Yeah, I was I was really shocked by that. And look, maybe she's evolved. It's very possible, you know, build back better or whatever in terms of what's happening here. But it, it is look, I'll have a soft spot for her from the campaign. She stood up to a lot of stuff um, in the face of a lot of overwhelming pressure. It's just the question of uh, where she wants to go from here on out. You know, by going on and especially on Sean Hannity and talking about it in this particular way, because it's always going to be like former Democratic Congresswoman, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like that's how they that's how it. these that's how this works whenever it comes to Fox and more. And so by going on and and uh, and pushing that, it's it is a change, obviously, from where she was in the past. The only question is whether she you know genuinely believes it or if she's doing it because she thinks it will her her, her uh, it will help her current brand. Listen, I've known Tulsi for a long time. Yeah. I met her for the first Friends time. Friends of the show for a long time. When she right. first ran for Congress, um, you know, I I really, we've defended her a million yeah. times from Many what times. were utterly disgusting attacks. And people can have genuine evolutions. I mean, I've gone through my own yeah. genuine same. evolution. Right. You have as well. You know, my views Huge. are not the same now as they were, for example, all back when I was at MSNBC. But I think when you have um, a position of such prominence, if you did go through some sort of genuine evolution, you owe people a little bit of an explanation of what's going on there. Yeah, I agree with that. Because again, it's not like, oh, I've just like tweaked my, I got more information, I tweaked my view on this or whatever. No, this is like, you used to have a completely different philosophy and ideology almost across the board. Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard to understand exactly what's going on with that when again, you know, just months and you know years ago it was Medicare for all, it was Green New Deal, it was we gotta bring the troops home and spend the money here instead. And now 
she sounds exactly like, you know, any of Sean Hannity's other guests who would come on and bemoan the big government right. and the cradle-to-grave dependency mentality, et cetera. So it's puzzling. Puzzling indeed. All right, guys. Thanks for watching. We'll have more for you later. Kyle sitting in for Crystal Ball. We're doing a little bit of weekend content here. And we found something pretty interesting. Shocking, actually, to see John Oliver for once actually do a segment which wasn't all that bad, not all that cringe, not boomer or resistance in any way. Talking about union busting and some of the illegal tactics that companies use. Let's take a listen to his segment. For an election to happen at all, 30% of workers must sign a union card expressing an initial interest in union representation. But Amazon for instance, has instructed its managers to be on high alert for the slightest sign that that might happen, as this leaked internal video shows. If you see warning signs of potential organizing, notify your building HRM and GM site leader immediately. The most obvious signs would include use of words associated with unions or union-led movements like living wage or steward. Wow. I mean, set aside how completely mask-off it is to treat the phrase living wage like the first warning sign of a stroke. You would also think a nearly $2 trillion company like Amazon could spring for better animation than jib-jab. But if enough workers do sign cards, the election process is then underway. And in that process, companies have some pretty huge advantages because, obviously, when you're on their premises, they have unfettered access to you while also having the ability to keep union reps out. And many companies take full advantage of that access. Amazon, for instance, inundated workers with anti-union signs all over their workplace, even putting them inside bathroom stalls. They also use workers' contact info to send multiple anti-union text messages to them per day and held mandatory meetings that seemed designed to spread fear. They had somebody who was like their, the captain of the union busting, who would come down and teach, like... What was the official title of the class? They just called it, like, union training. That's it. Which is funny, because it's not union training. It's anti... It's union busting 101. Right. It's not union training if the explicit goal is to kill the union. It'd be like taking a dog training class from Cruella de Vil. Although, no, not the one that's a misunderstood bohemian or whatever. I'm talking about the real Cruella. Yeah, that one, the original doggicidal bad bitch. Now, these mandatory propaganda sessions are called captive audience meetings, and most Amazon workers at Bessemer were having to attend at least two per week, and that is not uncommon. Nearly 90% of employers facing union campaigns hold captive audience meetings. Right now... Wow, you know, it was a good find. I wish we had found that, honestly. The, well, if they're talking about a living wage... <laughs> a dog whistle for a union or anything on a steward. Credit to him, honestly. And our producer, James, made a good point. The reason why this type of stuff is important is you, how many times are people who watch HBO, the resistance wine moms and all those people, they would never get exposed to any of this. They probably don't even know that a lot of this exists. So I would call it, even though I think he's cringe, a net positive that this was going out to that type of audience. Yeah, I'm general. I'm yeah. with you. I'm generally not a fan of John Oliver, but right. um, you know, every now and then he does something that I think is really good, and this wow. is a great example of it here. Um, yeah, what struck me was the same thing, the, the living wage uh. line, because 
you know, in order to be good at propaganda, you have to be subtle. Yeah, yeah, that's you right. You know, you have to take off the rough edges, smooth it out a little bit. Um, and that's not subtle. That's so heavy-handed. I'll give you a good example of, of what, you know, good propaganda is. Mm-hmm. And I think the right generally is fantastic at this stuff, and they have been uh, for decades. But when you talk about taking a, you know, a hardcore capitalist position, instead of using the word capitalism, which polls so-so, you go with free market. And if you say free market, yeah. it's like, well, how can anybody be against this? It's a free market. Mm-hmm. You know, they did this, obviously. This isn't a, a point for the right as much as more generally now, but when they named the Patriot Act the Patriot Act, it's like, you oppose this? It's the Patriot Act. Right. And eventually, you know, stuff needs to come out over time for everybody to turn on it. But you, you need to be more nuanced and clever with, with how you do it. And the thing that's so great about, you know, union busting being front and center now is it really shines a light on the fact that unions are— Sort of like one of the only ways to fight back against the overreach of the ruling class. And it just sort of balances out power better. When we had the highest rate of unionization in America during the golden age of economic expansion, um, the working class did the best it ever did. There's a direct correlation between how high the unionization rate is and how good everybody does. And a, a fact I love to come back to is that, did you know that in some Scandinavian countries, they don't even have a minimum wage? But the reason they don't is because they have near universal unionization among the workforce. They don't even need a minimum wage. Right. It's just, you know, everybody gets a wage that's higher than what any theoretical minimum wage would be. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, you know, we've covered it all the time. Actually, one of the things that you should care a lot about, you know, on the right is if you want institutions which are non-governmental, which are going to bargain for wages and are uh, make it so that the government doesn't have to say, the union is one of the best ways to do that because it actually is a way for people of all races, all stripes, and all of them to come together to actually use their bargaining power collectively absent any government interference. And that way, it's just the union and the firm who gets to make a decision. Uh, it makes it so that you don't have to step in to try and make a corrective or any of that. It's a point I've tried to make over and over again. And social cohesion-wise, it's one of the most important institutions that we had in modern American life. And you can see that the more the unionization goes down, the less people are hanging out in union halls or you know participating in those things, and they're spending a lot more social isolation, becoming more beholden to the corporation. So once again, props to Oliver for actually covering this. I was actually impressed by the segment. Good job, man. We'll take you, we'll uh, see you guys later. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.